Live from Evanston, Illinois, this is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by a panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight featured commentary from Mays Jackson from WVON Radio, Chicago conservative attorney Judith Sherwin, real estate auctioneer Rick Levin, economist from DePaul University Mike Miller, and Terry Savage, syndicated financial columnist. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us from our flagship station here at WCGO in Evanston, Illinois. And uh, we've got another full two hours for you this evening. In hour number one, we're going to have a combination of just two guests. In hour number one, something a little bit different. And in the second hour, we're going to be talking about the, the, the economic problems facing this nation and what is likely to happen. And we've got three great guests in hour number two. Uh, I'm going to begin with uh, welcoming uh, Judith Sherwin and Mays Jackson. Uh, Mays, it's nice to have you on this program. We have tried to do this a number of times uh, in the past. Uh, for those listening around the country, you are a well-known person in the Chicago area hosting mornings on WVON. So it's nice to have you on Beyond the Beltway. Honored to be here and honored to be here with the legendary uh, Bruce Dumont. It is, you know, I was there one time before with uh, Dan Prof, but he's nothing like you, Bruce. Well, thank you very much. You probably were a young boy when you first heard this program many years ago. I want to begin. What well, one of the big stories of uh, emerging in the last several days is uh, Barack Obama has popped up uh, and and uh, thrust himself into the campaign. And I'm wondering um, how important is Barack Obama to Joe Biden's success in November, Mays? You know, I. I think we get a lot of um, nostalgia from it, but I don't think that Barack Obama turns out anyone that wasn't already voting for Joe Biden. Additionally, I would, and this is now Bruce, I don't know. I'm not politically correct. Right. So this is probably tough for a person, a guy to say, but I'm not sure that particularly in the black community. I mean, I think we still revere, President Obama as the first black president from the symbolic. But I think when we look at the outcomes, the actual tangible outcomes, I think that he did not, he is not necessarily uh, going to be the driving force to turn people out, particularly in the black community. Judy Sherwin, uh, uh, you're, I want to get Judy Sherwin's response. You're a conservative Republican, but uh, uh, you certainly know the power of Barack Obama, but is it going to mean much uh, for turnout? Uh, if if May says maybe the maybe the turnout helps more in in white liberal communities than it does anywhere else. Yeah, I I um I would agree with Mays as far as the black community is concerned. I don't think based on the results in South Carolina uh, and the boost that he got from the black community there without Barack Obama's endorsement, I don't think Barack Obama is really going to help Joe Biden very much. I do think he might help in the white liberal community, um, but I I don't see him dragging people to the polls. If he were on the ticket, he would drag people to the polls because of the reveration that people have for him, both in the black community and the white community. It was a very big deal when Barack Obama was elected president, even for those of us who didn't support him. And so I think, uh, but but does he rev does he rev up Trump's base? I'm sorry. Does he rev up Trump's base? Um, probably. Yeah. I mean, people don't 
people in Trump's base feel like his eight years in office was a bad, a bad time for them. Uh-huh. Not because he was black, but because of the global, the globalism and sending jobs overseas and, and his foreign policies and, and what they felt was a real abandonment of, of that, you know, that um, blue wall that yeah. was supposed to hold for Hillary. Okay. All right, I want to go. I want to go. I want to go back to to Mays to to dig a little bit deeper. Uh, when when you say there was great pride, obviously with with Barack Obama being elected president within the African American communities of America, but again, uh, uh, with with four years hindsight, I mean, uh, are blacks happy that he was president, and did they see their lives change uh, for the better during those eight years? So let me say this: I would say that. Um, we, there, there will never be anything that can diminish Barack Obama's presidency as the first black president in our community. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. And if you say anything bad about him, I'm already borderline skating on thin ice right now. Right. However, I think when you talk about tangible outcomes, no one will say it out loud. And it's probably I'm probably going to be in trouble for saying it to a broader white audience. But I think when black folks look back, we look back, even if you look at Chicago, particularly, um, if you look at what, or Illinois, particularly, we didn't do particularly better in any way, shape or form or benefit. When you look at Texas, for instance, uh, they blew up after George Bush's because they brought the bacon home. I don't know if Barack, uh, locally, I don't know if Barack Obama really now is showing he, how much of a Chicagoan he really is or is not. Uh, nationally, you can't say anything bad about Barack Obama, but at the same time, I think we all look back and we recognize that we probably should have pressed him harder to get more things accomplished mm-hmm. in our community. Mm-hmm. Are things better now? No. Okay. Well, one of the things that was certainly a focal point of what happened during those eight years uh, in Chicago and elsewhere around the country, but certainly in Chicago, there was the epidemic of, of, of shootings and killings uh, in, in his hometown. And uh, uh, there wasn't much, at least from the federal level, there wasn't much action focused on, 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 on that problem. You know, I think that that's the first thing that the general market will point to is the violence in Chicago. That violence existed before Obama it still continues to this day. I think we're seeing the outspring of that, the same root causes of that violence is the same root causes of why black people are dying exponentially because of COVID-19. There has been uh, systemic disinvestment in the black community forever and ever and ever. And Barack Obama, quite frankly, continued that tradition. I would suggest that his response is no different than any federal response that we've seen Black or white. Our, uh, Judy, a, a, a question to you. When you look at how this campaign is unfolding now, uh, one of the other big stories, obviously, of the last, actually, a long time, but certainly the most recent move on it, uh, was uh, the decision involving General Quinn and also the FBI and the Justice Department. And my question to you is, as a political issue, 
is is General Flynn that important, or or is he viewed by at least many independents as an issue that's in the rearview mirror and is is only uh, it's only a turn on for the real diehards who are going to vote for Trump anyway? Well, I you know I have to if you if you uh, if you listen to CNN and you watch CNN. Uh-huh. According to them, General Flynn is four years in the rearview mirror, and who really cares about that anyway? Um, however, the the idea, the one of the main ideas of American politics is that no matter how we fight, no matter how we pull each other's hair out, when those four years are ended, or there's eight years are ended, and a new president is elected, there is a peaceful <coughs> and open transition of the government from one administration to the other. It seems rather clear that that did not happen this time. Okay, we've got, a, we've got a pause. We've got a pause, and we'll be back. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. This message is from the National Council on Aging. Adults over age 60 are at higher risk for the COVID-19 coronavirus because they may have weaker immune systems or chronic health conditions. The Centers for Disease Control recommends older adults avoid crowds and people who are sick. Wash your hands and disinfect surfaces often. Keep a two-week supply of food and medicine on hand. Learn more at ncoa.org. A few years ago, Steve Faircow's lungs were failing. I don't think I had more than a couple weeks to live. That's when Steve received a lung transplant made possible by an organ donor. Now Steve can do things he never imagined, like climbing 94 floors to the top of a skyscraper. I never knew that breathing could feel this good. It's an incredible gift. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont continuing on Beyond the Beltway. Let's head to the southwest. Let's go to Austin, Texas, where Joseph is listening to us tonight on KLBJ. Go ahead, Joseph. Okay, thank you, Bruce. Yeah, I have a question for the, uh, the uh, I guess, the Democrat. Who, well, he's, uh, he's, a, he's, on... a talk, he's a talk show host. I don't think he wants to be uh, known as one thing or the other. He's just okay, an outspoken then. talk show host. Go ahead. Okay. Yes, I uh, was commenting on Obama, the Obama administration, and yeah. uh, the fact that they, he didn't do enough for the black community, uh, especially in Chicago, yeah. which was his home, supposedly his hometown. Right. Um, I was wondering, does the black community realize that they live in, in America, the free enterprise is, is available to them? They can help themselves. Well, let's let's let Mays uh, tackle that. Mays, uh, I'm sure you've heard this before, but uh, your reaction to it? I hear that all the time, and I think that um, it we do believe in free enterprise. And quite frankly, if you look at uh, the black community, I don't think with the level of government investment or lack thereof, if we didn't believe in free enterprise, we probably would be wiped off the map. That stated, um, my belief as it relates to believing in free enterprises that we have to at least recognize that there have black people in this country have started way, way, way behind. And so when you look at things like redlining, when you look at the fact that there's no access to capital, 
Yes, there is free enterprise, but you have to be able to be, you have to be participating in the mainstream system. And I think quite frankly, we've been left out and left behind in most mm-hmm. cases. Stand by Joseph. Go ahead, Judith. Yeah. I mean, so I understand that that's, that's a historic position and, and I can't argue with that. All right. So along comes somebody like Donald Trump, who, who, when he's campaigning in 2016, goes around to the black community and says, what have you got to lose? Right. And, and he, in his administration, I, I think it's hard to argue that he has not reached out to the black community, that he has not tried to bring economic impact to the black community. Um, you know, uh, Senator Tim Scott, uh, created this idea of the enterprise zones. Uh, you know, Trump grabbed the whole of this and, and has been pushing this around the country. He's reached out to the historic black colleges. He's done a variety of things. Judith, with, Judith, before, think, before you go further, I'll let you continue, but Maze, I want you to follow up and, and react to what Judith has said just thus far. So again, I'm, I'm probably, I'm in the one 100 millionth minority in the black community that would publicly say that Judith, uh, that Judith, in some cases, you are right, um, that Donald Trump has attempted to reach out. Uh, I think that the level of vitriol is so high that in our community, we are programmed so much to say uh, that he is a bad guy. What I have advocated for my listening what I have advocated for my listening audience is that Donald Trump is the highest elected official in the land, black or white. We have to advocate for ourselves. What the government has, what Chuck and Nancy have consistently done is told us to resist while they continue to go into meet with Donald Trump and move forward. The, the challenge for black people politically is that so much of the rhetoric is brought to the forefront as com- and we can't get past the rhetoric and get to the soup and nuts of the issue. I would not argue with you to say that he has not reached out. I think that the the it is how has it been credible and how has it been consistent? And then who is he reaching out to? I would say that the Black Caucus and con- Congressional Black Caucus has failed the Black community in a lot of cases because there were a lot of initiatives that could have been taken advantage of. And it's a it's a shame that uh, Kim Kardashian has been able to be more impactful in the criminal justice system than all of the black people that have uh, sat out this situation. So when I, you, I'll uh, step back. Mays, when, when, when you say that to African-Americans and, and you talk about the criminal justice efforts that the president had, which others had tried and never pushed over the goal line, what is the, what is the reaction to that? I think there's probably people with pitchforks outside my house right now. Um, really? I think that there is such the, the intensity. I, I would like it, the intensity and Judy, I would go back to something you said before uh, when you said that um, Barack Obama, it, it didn't have to do with the fact that, 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 the, that a lot of people felt that they weren't succeeding under Barack Obama. And you listed all of those globalizations and all that stuff. But in my mind and to the minds of black folks, fundamentally that's all fluff for the fact that it is really because he's black or yes, because he was black. All right. Here's the thing though. 
And I think you missed this because I said this too, and I'm not sure you heard me. When Barack Obama was elected, that was a milestone in my life, in my white life. Okay, <laughs> I, I was, and and I, you know, I was very happy to see that, and I thought that this was a turning point for America. Okay, and somehow it has not been. Okay, it, it in many ways we're almost worse than we were before he was elected. I mean, if, if, if white people in America are so terrible, how did he get elected twice? Some of those people, you think, may have- White guilt, can I answer that? Yeah. White guilt, white guilt. Okay, I'll go white guilt, that. right? I feel like- okay, okay, that's true for a lot of people. I agree with you. You know, and I can't stand it. When I hear the white guilt, I want, you know, it makes my head pop off. Okay. But all right. You don't know very much about me and my background, but Bruce could tell you when I first met Bruce, I was I was in the anti-war movement. I was working in black churches on the vote and in Cicero. You were very left. You were very left when I knew you 45 years ago. I mean, well, very left wing, very pro-civil rights. When I was 17 years old, I had the great honor of meeting Martin Luther King, which is like one of the greatest moments of my life. So I mean the thought of, of the white guilt stuff drives me crazy. There are a lot of people who were very happy to see Barack Obama and to see him elected who weren't guilty. And there are a lot of independents and there are a lot of those those people who 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 had their jobs taken away from them eventually by all these miserable trade treaties and everything else who were happy to see him elected because we want the country to move forward. Okay. And the, the country is but never going to move forward let me, unless we can solve this problem. Let okay? me, let me, let me interject here for a moment, because again, uh, uh, if people just tuned in, uh, they might've thought that uh, Barack Obama is running for president again in November because we've spent so much time <laughs> talking about him. But like we've had a debate over uh, whether or not he will be elected. So I want to switch gears and and and, and again talking about the future. Um, to to what extent um, are are people in 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 your neighborhood and the your, your constituents, the people that you talk with on a regular basis, how fearful are they of the future in a post COVID nineteen world, if such a world ever arrives? Maze. I would say that I would say initially people were very cavalier. I think that as we are starting to see um, these new rules, sort of the infringement on our uh, constitutional rights in different ways, people are starting to get a little bit nervous. I think when you see um, when you see that the the mass requirements and the fact that uh, you can be arrested now. The state is now being divided up in the zone. So we're one state, right? But there's different zones. So can you imagine me, Mays Jackson, driving from Chicago to Springfield once I get past uh, Joliet, what that zone looks like and what? So I think what we are really starting to work, and one of the biggest things that I'm hearing is that we will be stigmatized by this disease because it kills black people and there will be some way to utilize it to um, marginalize or not marginalize, but to put an additional scarlet letter 
on us. But would you, but would you acknowledge though, since uh, since pre, the, the pre-existing conditions, the health conditions that contribute to death by COVID nineteen, many of those conditions like diabetes and hypertension are are rampant in the black community. They've been rampant in the black community forever. And are those maladies, are those maladies, which is part of the black health experience, uh, are, are those, con- should those be pinned on white, po- white people? No. What I think it should be pinned on is systemic disinvestment in communities. Let me give you an example, and then I'm just going to go, and then I'll, I'll turn it back over to Judy. But okay. I, would, I would say that the black diet, that we know the delicacies, the soul food, all of those things Mm -hmm. that are readily available in our community were part of a diet that are cheap because there's not a lot of money and they probably derived from a non-healthy diet from a slave diet. Now let me move to where we are now. When you talk about diabetes and high blood pressure, go to a black community and see how many grow uh, the food, the food desert. No, it, what it is, is we have air corner stores that are owned by people who do not live in our communities, who do not care about ensuring that we have healthy food, etc. We don't own any grocery stores. And so we don't own those little restaurants. And so what you look at is, uh, you see, excuse me for interrupting. I've got to interrupt. You basically see convenience stores that are filled with junk. Junk food. We've got to pause. We've got to. We've got to pause, and we'll be back. One 8289 When we come back, we'll talk more with our guests and your calls. One 8289 Hi, this is Dr. Phil. The new coronavirus called COVID nineteen is spreading in China and beyond. While CDC is working to stop the spread of the virus, we can all play a role in stopping this deadly disease. The CDC Foundation is a nonprofit organization supporting emergency response efforts in the United States and around the world. To get updates and learn how to protect friends and loved ones, find out how to help by going to cdcfoundation.org. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont back in Evanston, Illinois. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, let us now introduce our guests or let them introduce themselves. And we'll begin tonight with Mays Jackson. Mays, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, my name is Mays Jackson. Happy to be on Beyond the Beltway. I am the host of the WVON Morning Show. You can catch me every day, Monday through Friday, 6 to 9 a.m. on 1690 a.m. That's WVON. Or you can watch us on Facebook Live on the Mays Jackson Hey. Very good. Judith Sherwin. Hi, uh, I'm Judith Sherwin. I uh, am an attorney in Chicago. I also teach um, First Amendment issues uh, at Loyola Law School, and I teach some courses in ethics and business in the uh, online program of the law school. 
And I'm very happy to be on the show tonight with Mays. Very good. Uh, by the way, in hour number two, we're going to be joined by uh, Mike Miller from DePaul University and uh, Rick Levin, who is a real estate auctioneer, and Terry Savage, nationally syndicated financial columnist. They'll be joining us. We'll be talking about the economy and the future for the country uh, in hour number two of Beyond the Beltway. And let me also mention to you, as you know, uh, uh, since uh, we left the Chicago uh, or the Chicago Museum of Broadcast Communications uh, from our origination point, the cost of producing this program has gone up. And you've heard me say uh, in in previous months on this program that the production costs of this program are getting uh, uh, they're, they're getting rather high. They, it may not look like that, but trust me, uh, they are. And so I am appealing once again to, for those uh, to go to our GoFundMe page. And again, uh, there was great response when I first mentioned this last December. We're a little over halfway uh, to our goal right now. But if you go to GoFundMe and look up Beyond the Beltway or maybe even an easier way to do it is go to beyondthebeltway.com right there on the homepage. There's a place where you can click on donate and uh, every penny, I promise to you, every penny will be used for the satellite production of this program each and every Sunday night. So wherever you're listening to us or if you are watching us online, uh, this will help defray those costs to keep this program coming to you on radio, on television, on the Internet uh, for as long as we possibly can. So go to beyondthebeltway.com and give as best you can. I realize things are tough out there, but do the best you can to support us on our GoFundMe campaign. Now let's go to Michael, who's listening to us in Kansas City, Missouri. Go ahead, Michael. Hi, thanks for having, hi, thanks for having me on, Michael. Good. Good to see you. I'm just first-time caller and first-time listener. Uh, the last uh, guest said something about... Um, by the uh, black population getting more infected uh, uh-huh. or something. Right. And it did say something about we don't own any grocery stores or don't own any restaurants. It's just not true in my part of the country. I don't know about hers, but lots of black people own restaurants, lots of black people own stores, and I don't really know where that came into play. But, uh, it just seems like they try to divide everything by race and making this COVID-19 a race issue. It is not a racial issue. It affects everyone the same if you happen to have underlying conditions and uh, uh, in poor physical health, and it's obviously going to affect you more. Um, Michael, let me just interject for a moment, and then I'm going to let Mays respond. But let me just say something. In in the major cities of America, at least this, the, the, the reporting that I have seen is that the largest percentage of those who have been uh, affected and, and inflicted with COVID-19 are African-American. I do not know whether that includes those that have died from COVID-19, but certainly those uh, who have been infected with it. So that seems to be a fact in all the major cities. Uh, the mayor of Chicago has made a major point of that and it goes back to the disparity, some of the health disparities insofar as health facilities in African-American communities. And it also goes into some systemic things like you know hypertension and diabetes, which is more prevalent or certainly significantly prevalent in the African-American communities. And Amaze was getting into sort of the historical you know, nature of the diet. But I think the, the point that Mays was going to make, and I'll let him make it, was that they're, they're the grocery stores, there are not traditional large grocery stores in African-American communities, at least in Chicago and certainly in Los Angeles. Those are two cities that I can reference. So I'm going to let him pick up on that uh, because you, you are correct. Everyone makes their own decision. They make their own decision as to what they put in their mouth or they, 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 they put in their arm. But the point is, I'm going to let Mays continue his with his thought and we'll go back to you for a final word go ahead base you know what so 
first of all, let, let me thank you for even calling in and being a first time caller and a first time listener. And I appreciate you being willing to share your opinions. Look, um, I think one of the things that uh, white America would like to do is conveniently ignore the role that race plays in our everyday lives. Uh, oftentimes for white America, it is something that you really don't have to experience. You can push it to the side and really go about your day without ever being concerned with the issues that are going on in the black community. Now, I will tell you that there are some personal responsibility issues, but there are some things and some traditions that go back years and years and years that have been learned and need to be unlearned. I don't think that we all start at the same place. And so I think that there are specific needs and specific issues that are plaguing the black community. Now, let me just, and then I'll, I'll, be, I'll wrap up very quickly. When I talk about in our community, the black community has become uh, the place where people who come from other countries come to get their start, right? So if you go to a black community, if you look at the Koreans, the Arabs, the Mexicans, the whoever, and I mean that by no offense, they come to our communities, they pull their resources, they start businesses, and then they take those resources out of our community because they have access to capital, both culturally and actual physical capital. There are some real rebuilding things that need to happen in the black community. Uh, and the fact that COVID-19 in Illinois, Black people are last in all 16 economic indicators. So for us to be first in COVID-19 deaths, Bruce, and what, what I think we really need to look at is around the country, the survival rate is almost 90, is 90 something percent. 30 percent of all the people who die are Black. Okay, I'm through. Let, let me ask one follow up and then I will give it, go, go back to Michael. In the African-American communities, and I'm talking about communities all over the country, and I'm talking for the last 75 years, there has been a significant amount of black wealth. Are you saying that, that black wealth, and I don't just mean Oprah and LeBron James and Michael Jackson or, or, or Michael Jordan, has, has a, what percentage, if you can, of, of major black wealth has been reinvested in, in the black community to, to put a grocery store or to put in other things that, 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 uh, that help commerce. Bruce, where is this, where is this black wealth that you speak of? If you take out sports and entertainment, if you stop watching blackish on TV, which makes everybody feel like it's all good. The fact of the matter is black wealth has declined significantly in this country. We still are not recovered from the last recession when the uh, when the economy and when the economy crashed. That black wealth does not exist. Go ahead, uh, um, Judith. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, no, no. Go ahead. It's, it's, I, go ahead. I understand what you're saying, and and I have to come back to what I said before. You have someone in the White House who says, "I want to help. I want to do things in the black community. I'm reaching out to the black community," and you say to me. Well, that's not going to work because the level of vitriol is so terrible that they won't even listen to them. And I, I think that that is true to some degree. But, you know, once again, what have you got to lose? What has Nancy Pelosi done for you? What has Chuck Schumer done for you? 
Well, what, what by, by the way, here, here's, 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 here's one for here's, the black community, here's, except from run for your vote. Here's, here's one. I want to, I want to, I want to interject with, with a, with interpretation of, of, of a fact from the recent CNN poll. And then we're going to go back to Michael. I promised him the last word, the recent <laughs> CNN poll, which says that Joe Biden is winning nationally, but that Donald Trump is leading in about 15 of the battleground States. When you look, when you go deeper into that poll, you know what it says? It says that 26% of those tested are African-Americans and they're going to vote for Donald Trump. 26%. So that means, in my view, Judith and Mays, the, the stuff that the president is saying and doing, it's, you may not be the only one that's, that's understanding that maze. There may be more, they may not be the ones that call your show or <laughs> send you vicious Facebook posts, but I mean, there appears to be at least according to this poll, a considerable number of African-Americans who are willing to give Donald Trump a chance. Can I, can I say one thing? Um, and, and then Mays, I'll, I'll let you talk, but I, the other morning, I uh, I'd never heard your show, so I got on the I got on the internet and I listened to your show for a while, and there was a gentleman who called up who had some very terrible things to say about Donald Trump. Um, he sounded to me like he was a black man. I assume he was, and he said, "Come November, I'm going fishing." <laughs> That's Brother Hall. You remember him? Brother Hall. Okay. He shouldn't go fishing. What's he going fishing for? Let him get his community. I assume that he's got some standing in the community. Let him talk to his friends. Let him talk to people and say, you know what? These Democrats are a bunch of, of, of charlatans. They don't do anything for us. Look at the children getting murdered in, in on the west side and the south side. Look at what's going on with COVID-19. Look at our neighborhoods. Look at the fact that we don't have enterprise zones. Let's go vote for somebody okay. who can get us some of that. Okay. Maze, Maze, we're going to come back to you. And Michael, are you still on the phone? I am, but I don't have anything okay. <laughs> put together thank, in my head to say. It's all over okay. the board, but thank I, you. I like your guest. Thanks very much. You started the conversation. We'll continue it. I'm Bruce Dumont, and don't go away. Every year, millions of Americans use opioids to manage pain. Pain can be unrelenting, overwhelming, and all-consuming. So why do so many of us try to manage pain only from the palm of our hands? Doctor-prescribed opioids are appropriate in some cases, but they just mask the pain. And reliance on opioids has led to the worst drug crisis in American history. That's why the CDC recommends safer alternatives, like physical therapy, to manage pain. Physical therapists treat pain through movement, hands-on care, and patient education. No warning labels required. And by increasing physical activity, you can also reduce your risk of other chronic diseases. Pain is personal, but treating pain takes teamwork. When it comes to your health, you have a choice. Choose more movement and better health. Choose physical therapy. Visit MoveForwardPT.com to find a physical therapist in your area. This message is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association. 
Bruce Dumont back in Evanston, Illinois, and uh, let's go to Bonnie listening to us in Crown Point, Indiana. Go ahead, Bonnie. Hello, Bruce. I got two comments to make. Um, I'm a commercial real estate lender. Good luck. And I to go in. I work on Saturdays, so I get off um, because I had to look at a property on the west side, and so I get off at 290 at Laramie, and I start heading north. So now I'm on the south side of of the city on Laramie. Yeah. And I passed multiple intersections that I had to stop at because there were lights. There were major intersections. And there were a lot of African-American men there. They're all wearing masks under their chin. And I'm thinking to myself, what's the point exactly? And they were not socially distancing themselves. They just were wearing, having the mask stuck under their chin. That's my first comment. My second comment is, um, I had a customer who was a real estate investor, but she also owned a little grocery store on the south side mm-hmm. in an African-American neighborhood. Unfortunately, she was Korean. And she, at some point, quite a few years ago, she closed the little store. She sold the property. And I says, why did you close the store? She says, I can't make any money. She says, you know, First of all, the people in the community think that I'm some foreigner coming in, opening a store to take advantage of them and overcharging the people there. She said, yeah, my prices were higher. I'll admit that. She said, but the amount of shoplifting required me to charge more in order for me to make any kind of a profit whatsoever. Bonnie, so Bonnie look, one, one second. Let, let's let Mays respond because he has probably heard similar stories uh, like this in the past. Uh, so Bonnie, first, thanks for calling. Uh, I would encourage you to, if you want to see, you know, you saw those people when you were driving on Laramie, uh, you were on 290. So you probably saw a lot of white people getting off of Laramie, going to pick up drugs. Cause that's also known as the heroin highway now and taking them back to the suburbs. Now, let me also say that while you were probably looking, if you would have taken, if you would have turned right instead of going left and went north instead of south, then you would have seen all types of white folks with no masks on, not socially distancing, breaking every rule and every law. Um, when it comes to the lady that you talk about who came to, who who opened up a little corner store in, our, in, in a black neighborhood, but she couldn't make any money, let's be clear, she came to make a profit. She didn't come to do it because it was altruistic. She came because she knows that there, hold on, she knows that that is a community that has is a food desert. And so they are trapped. And so she does get to charge them higher prices. And so perhaps, maybe just perhaps, if she built a relationship with the people in the community she was looking to profit off of, they would see her as a part of the community as compared to someone invaded. Thank you. Okay, we're going to move on. Let's go to Joy in Spokane, Washington. Hi, um, I am an older white woman, and um, I've lived in California, and I now live in Spokane, which is a very different type of community. Uh-huh. But, you know, the way I like to look at it is I think more of white awareness rather than white guilt or whatever, um, you know, because I think when you're talking to other people, 
white people, they'll quickly hold up their hands and say, I'm not a racist. You're accusing me of being a racist. Um, and I'm not, I like everybody, but I think, I think what us whites need to look at is years and years and years and decades and centuries of, of dominance and what systems have been put in place that maintain that dominance. And like the grocery stores, I was involved as a faith-based community um, organizer, uh, and I was a volunteer. I wasn't a paid organizer. But we were trying to get a grocery store in East Palo Alto, across the freeway from Palo Alto. And it's a tremendous obstacle to try to do that. Banks do not want a loan, and they don't have any banks in their community. Um, and uh, so, um, the, as you said, the convenience stores are offering things in high-calorie, high-sodium, but that's, that's what they have. Or they take two or three buses to get into a, a, a store, and then the whole time people are looking at them of whether or not they're going to shoplift in that store. Um, or people will say, you know, well, they just need to have more exercise, join teams. Well, you, they can't afford, the kids can't oftentimes afford to pay the cost of team sports or they're not at their school. So again, transportation is an issue. And I just, I wish without it turning adversarial that so many more whites would say, what is it that I take for granted? I myself have not necessarily um, been a racist or I haven't done something against a person, but what do I contribute to and what am I unaware of within our system that particularly Joy, keep the African community down? Joy, uh, I'm going to go to Mays. Mays, uh, take the last minute of our, of our segment tonight and answer or uh, respond to Joy. You know what? So I think that uh, she is right in that she has seen that there is a benefit to being white in America. If you say that there is not, then you are fooling yourself. Uh, just like there is a benefit to being white in America, there is a negative benefit in a lot of cases for black people. Let me just say one thing really quickly, because I feel like I, there's no way I could be on this show without at least mentioning Ashad Arbery and his murder kill by this uh, citizens count this citizens arrest. Right. And I think if there is an example of the inequity for black people in this country, it is that another example of here a black man just jogging, shot down, and no opportunity for justice. And so, Judith, Judith, real quick, Please. when you say why, what do we have to lose? When, when you say, what do you have to lose? Not from you, but a lot of times the people saying, what do we have to lose? Are those same people that were in the back of the pickup truck that killed that brother. We've got to pause. pause. We're out of time. Mays Jackson. What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games. But I hope he does. 
I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours, that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. Bruce Dumont back with our number of two of Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us from coast to coast and border to border around the world at beyondthebeltway.com. If you'd like to call us up, 1-800-723-8029. In this hour, we're going to be talking about uh, the economy and what is likely uh, uh, to happen in the future. And we've got three great guests. We have uh, Mike Miller, who's been a guest on this show for many, many years, economist from DePaul University. We have Terry Savage, the nationally known finance columnist who appears in newspapers all over the country and is on television frequently. And uh, Rick Levin, who's been an old friend of this program, he is in uh, real estate and also he's an auctioneer. And so he deals with the commercial real estate uh, issues in real estate in this country. So folks, thanks very much for joining us. Mike Miller, I'm going to begin with you. Uh, with all the dire news that is out there, um, and and there's reports every couple of days we're 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 close to you know you know huge percentages another three million people went on unemployment last week. Of all those indicators that come out periodically, which is the one that you watch most closely to indicate what the future might be? Future it would be employment because you need people to produce. Uh, GDP is expected to decline at an annual rate. 
somewhere between 35 and 41% during the second quarter. And uh, that number can only turn around if people get back to work. So looking at it, it's also uh, whether firms will hire the people back. So the, the future will depend a lot upon what is called payroll employment. And uh, that's a measure of people who work for other people like I do at the university. Terry Savage, what would you add to that answer? Um, I think the thing I look most at is consumer confidence, uh, which is like an oxymoron today. There is no consumer confidence at all. And I think uh, tied in with jobs, which Mike is absolutely correct on today, we had Jay Powell saying, and he, the Fed chairman saying he expects unemployment could reach 30 percent, 30 percent. So that just destroys not only current feelings and ability to pay for things, but the confidence to plan ahead and build and grow for the future. So combination of jobs and the emotional side of it, which I'll call consumer confidence, I think are just uh, devastating right now. Rick Levin, uh, um, elaborate, if you will, and also from a, from a commercial real estate perspective, what are the indicators that you look at? Well, obviously, the, the, the big question right now is, what is anything worth? And that is a real troubling question. Um, the, really, the three categories that you come to think of right away are office buildings. Uh, about 97% of Goldman Sachs workers are working from home, and it appears to be working. When we get past this uh, pandemic, uh, are a lot of companies going to let a lot of their employees stay home and work? Like uh, Jack Dorsey from Twitter said, he'll let his employees work from home forever. Well, what does that mean for the value of office buildings and, and businesses that surround office buildings that cater, uh, restaurants and all the rest, parking facilities, for example? Uh, then you've got, of course, an easy one, uh, shopping centers with Neiman Marcus and JCPenney and all the other problems that we're seeing in retail that was coming already because of Amazon. And then in the real in the residential sector, for 30 years, people wanted to move to the city center and live in uh, vertical high rises. Now people are scared to get in the elevator and push the button. So they might want to move back out to the suburbs and have five acres. So there's a total disruption in the, in the real estate market right now. Do you see that as well, Mike? I mean, is it, that's a pretty gloomy I think it's correct, frankly. It's kind of a gloomy look at what the future is like and, and uh, the significant changes in our lifestyle. Do you, do you see all of those, and what would you add to it? As a college professor, I mean, have you looked at your last full college uh, course of face-to-face? It, it, it certainly may be the case, and what was interesting is uh, my last in-class discussion was I was teaching at uh, United Airlines, and it was during this crunch uh, that we were together and to see the students come in and, and not not be sure if tomorrow they would have a job. These are MBA students. This was really wrenching, both for the students and myself. And there is a chance uh, we will not be in the classroom come the autumn. And I'm getting towards the end of my career. This I may hardly ever get back into the classroom. And I'm not sure that's a good thing. Just like I understand that firms want us to maybe work from home but I'm one, for example, that I like to keep home and work separate. Those are two different lives. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that mixing work and home for everybody or for large numbers of people is uh, necessarily a productive thing to do. Terry, look into your crystal ball. What, what, would you, what would you add to the picture that is being painted tonight about what the future of, of work uh, and employment is in the United States? 
So we're talking about some, as uh, they would say, high-class problems to have because we're talking about where we will work as if we know we will work. Yeah. Uh, the other thing Chairman Powell said was that of the households that had workers' income under 40, around $40,000 or less, 40% of them are out of a job. I mean, like half of the people that make the least amount of money yeah. are out of work is another way of saying that. And while professors and TV reporters and so forth have savings to tide them over, we're talking about a lot of people in America that are really lining up for food. People that had jobs that thought they were sort of yes. okay, they didn't have savings. But now they're, they're they talk about people that didn't have jobs and whose children got their nourishment from a school lunch program mm -hmm. and now don't have that. So some cracks in our society, everybody, you know, pontificated about income inequality. It's an economic phrase. It's a political phrase. It has just become a reality check. And that's going to change America too on the way out. Yeah. And I'm, I'm convinced, uh, Bruce, that, um, the government or the people who are making decisions, especially in state and local government, are not taking into account these effects upon on people's lives. I, I think that they think that I've heard how many of them say, if I can save just one life, I'm willing to destroy the lives of millions upon millions of other people. And I, I think there's a really bad calculation here. And we have... Uh, I think, the, the, to use the old expression, the cure has been much worse than the disease. Are we also learning that those who are at the lower rung of the economic ladder, who are doing all of the important work for us now, whether it's packing our, our grocery shelves or delivering food to us, who are minimum wage or less, usually less than minimum wage in tips, uh, and, and the, the, uh, the hospitality economy... <laughs> Are, are we realizing now that these are people that they're important to us and they deserve more than a minimum wage when, when business gets back? And is this a lesson that big business and the, let's say the major food companies are going to have to realize that, you know, they can't get along with paying these people that are so important. I mean, we're describing them as heroes. We're, we're flying over the, their cities with blue angels. Uh, Rick, is this going to be a uh, a major learning experience for those who are very who will be very successful when they come back, but they're going to have to pay their employees uh, more money? I need a fifteen you know, second answer to that. Yeah, I, I think the answer is no, because at the end of the day, I don't think those people can demand uh, double the income that they're receiving right now, and I think they'll be willing to work for approximately the same wage that they're working for now. And okay. it is a real shame. And we've had this problem for a long time in America ever since 9-11 when firemen would run into a burning building and yet you'd pay a person that plays Major League Baseball $2 million to sit on the bench. Yeah. And that has not changed at the moment. We've got to pause. 1-800-723-8029. We're talking about the economy and the future of the United States and the world. Back shortly. This message is from the National Council on Aging. Adults over age 60 are at higher risk for the COVID-19 coronavirus because they may have weaker immune systems or chronic health conditions. The Centers for Disease Control recommends older adults avoid crowds and people who are sick. Wash your hands and disinfect surfaces often. Keep a two-week supply of food and medicine on hand. Learn more at ncoa.org. 
A few years ago, Steve Faircow's lungs were failing. I don't think I had more than a couple weeks to live. That's when Steve received a lung transplant made possible by an organ donor. Now Steve can do things he never imagined, like climbing 94 floors to the top of a skyscraper. I never knew that breathing could feel this good. It's an incredible gift. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont back. We've got some comments. Paul Doerr is listening to the program this evening, a big fan of Mike Miller's. Larry Miller writes in, I did not deserve the stimulus money with my situation. I am donating to those that will need it. So thank you very much, Larry. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that appreciate it. Um, back to what the government is doing. Nancy Pelosi wants to send, uh, she wants to spend another uh, several trillion dollars on sending more money uh, to individuals. Uh, my question to you is uh, on all this stimulus package, uh, uh, Rick, what is the commercial real estate uh, industry getting out of this, if anything? Uh, at the moment, people don't have to pay their home mortgages and there's forbearance. So they'll eventually have to pay it. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, there aren't penalties if it's uh, Fannie and Freddie, like most home mortgages are back mortgages. Uh, as far on the, on the commercial front, you know, a lot of banks right now have been loath to foreclose. They're, they're trying to cooperate with <clears throat> borrowers, especially small commercial owners. If, if they, you know, can document that they're not receiving their rents, they, they may give some um, temporary uh, relief to those mm-hmm. owners. But I would not say that people that decided to build a movie theater uh, are going to be getting bailed out by the U.S. government because that was the real estate they chose to build. Mm-hmm. Mike Miller, what what is your assessment of the way in which the government is giving out money to people? Are they doing it wisely with with proper guidance, or is it just Katie by uh, the door? I, I'm really torn on this. Um, normally, I would not be as uh, a fan of large stimulus packages such as this one, but in this case, the government caused all this problems. They made the decision to shut down the economy. Uh, to, to me, they're on the hook then to have to pay for it. However, they had to do it fast. And of course, it's been extremely blunt, just like when Larry Miller, which, by the way, I think is my brother. He uh, oh, when really? he wrote in, he didn't need that money. And uh, he's a good man who who and he's going to give it away. But of course, why would we have a policy that would make sure that somebody like he gets gets that money? It, it's a very blunt uh, situation. We we're giving people who are unemployment an extra $600, which means they have no desire to go back to work because they will have to take actual cut in the amount of money that's coming to them. All kinds of, of uh, in, um, strange incentives in it. But at the same time, well, that's just I a must bad, admit that's that, a bad, that's, that's a bad, someone was not thinking ahead on that. No, they were not thinking ahead on this. And we know, for example, even under normal times at unemployment compensation, can add about one half percent to the unemployment rate under normal times. And so, uh, again, I'm really torn because the government, this is a unique event in that the government caused the whole dang thing. Okay. Terry Savage, everything. looking at at the government's role, what, in your opinion, have they done right? And and what have they done wrong? As Mike has identified one area. Let me tell you about something that... Most people listening tonight will have no idea about, and I wouldn't have either, except my website, terrysavage.com, went viral after I started 
six, seven weeks ago when the stimulus came out, uh-huh. I decided I should know the questions and answers. And I posted a bunch of them. People post questions. On, um, and it went viral. Um, Google Chrome picked it up as where to look for stimulus answers. And hundreds of thousands of people in one week just swamped my site. And it's still I'm a, a, a source for Facebook groups. Let me tell you what happened. This is so backwards. This is a quick rant, Bruce. The government sent out stimulus checks first to people who had tax refunds coming by direct deposit. I mean, you know the qualifications, the income qualifications. They also made it so that dependents 16 uh, or under would get $500. But if your child was in college and listed as a dependent on your return, you didn't get the $500. But that's a problem for people that can afford to return stimulus payments. What they did is they started sending out uh, stimulus payments to people who file tax returns. The next round would be people who get Social Security retirement and disability. And though they're bragging they've sent out 130 million payments, they have not sent out, they're just starting to send out to people on Social Security. I know, I haven't gotten mine. Okay, and Social (laughs) Security, you make too much. And Social Security (laughs) disability. But watch this. There's a, there are people, I didn't know this. There's a vast swath of people in America who receive something called SSI, Supplemental Security Income. They're the poorest of the poor. They don't file a tax return. For the first three or four weeks, the government said, all of you people will have to file a form that we'll put up online. They didn't realize these people don't have computers. They don't have smartphones. They couldn't get to the public library. It's closed to file. I and many others said to the IRS, this is insane. So then they said, all right, we'll put it on the same benefit card that you get your SSI. It's a debit card they give these people. And then all these people said, but we have children. And how will we get it for our children? The government said, now you have until May 5th to list your children as dependents and we'll send you benefits. And now I am inundated this past 10 days. Many people got their SSI on their card, their $1,200, but not one got the $500 for their each for their three or four children. Now, whether you think we should be giving money to people for children or not is another political story. Yeah. We promised it. These people can't feed their children. There's a huge Facebook group that posted my name. And I've been trying to get to the IRS and saying, say something to these people. Are you going to do another pass? Yeah. The government has been totally insensitive. That's the federal level. Don't get me started on our state benefits. That's another crisis for mm-hmm. another segment here. Yeah. Yeah. Just one quick one, uh, uh, Bruce. Uh, last November, I lost my uh, beloved in-laws within five days. And uh, guess what came into the mail or came into their bank account uh, about uh, three, four weeks ago? Their checks. Their checks. Now, I've returned them. I went online and found out that they all have to be returned. But see, that's the bluntness of a policy when you do it so quickly. You know, uh, go ahead, Rick. Go ahead, Rick. You know, I'll take the contrary of you. I think the government, maybe not having enough ventilators and PPP equipment and all the rest, but I think in the handing out of three billion, $3 to $6 trillion very quickly, uh, I I think they've done okay. And, And I'll tell you why. The physical ability to even cut checks at the U.S. Treasury is $5 million a week. They can't, they don't even have the presses to press more than 5 million checks a week. So you can't just say send out 50 million checks. Yes, of course, there's going to be fraud. And of of course, we're from Chicago. So people in the cemetery vote 
And of course, occasionally they get a check when someone's passed away. But I think the fact that the stock market is only down 15, 20%, and we don't see total civil unrest are actually positive attributes to what the government has done on the financial side of things here. I'm not talking about the long-term implications and unintended consequences like the $600 bonus so people psychologically don't want to go back to work. But at the moment, approximately two months into this, I think they've done a fairly good job of doling out $3 trillion or more. I even the SBA, even the SBA was overwhelmed with 14 years worth of loans in about a week or two. Rick, 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 however, are the American people getting hooked on this? Are they going to expect a check from the government every six or seven months? Isn't yeah, that, sure, isn't, sure. Isn't that, is, that's part of what Nancy Pelosi is, is working on with her, with her plan that he, is going Bruce, you don't even have to be, you don't even have to be an illegal, you don't even have to be a legal resident. We're going to send uh, money out part of the plan yeah. to uh, illegal uh, people in this country. But yes, this was part if of it, Yang's if plan, it passed, you might recall. If it the Senate. Send everybody uh, minimum uh, amounts of money every month so they can um, have a small amount of money in their pocket. Yes, I think the American people would get hooked on this, like just like a Starbucks coffee every day. Does yeah. everybody, does everybody, Terry, are you worried about that the American people are going to get hooked on these uh, checks from the, from the government, even if they one come the, late? You know, one of the things we know is that the only real way out of poverty is economic growth and jobs. That's right. We just know You're that right. from, you can't print your way out. Nope. Now, right now, the states can't print their way out because they don't have the printing presses. The federal government, as Jay Powell said on TV today, can create an unlimited amount of money as long as the rest of the world is willing to buy our IOUs. And uh, this week, this is the last two weeks, we've noticed that the foreign purchases and ownership of treasury securities has declined markedly. You know, when the world is in trouble, the whole world's money, the liquidity of the world runs to buy the safety of U.S. government IOUs, which is why we have such low, almost almost negative, but not negative, interest rates. The world is willing to lend the U.S. money. At some point, someone looks up and says, hey, wait a second. They're printing all this money. What is this worth? What, what kind of interest rate should we demand to compensate for the fact the money's worthless? And you look at the gold market today, it's been up over this weekend, close to $1,760 an ounce. We're getting back oh. to our Because somewhere around the world, people are saying, they're printing all that money. What's a dollar going to be worth? It's a problem. Mike Miller. I, yeah, I, uh, I agree that, uh, that this could be a problem. Now, what happened when we did it during the uh, Great Recession is that the money went into the banking system is what are called reserves. So something fancy called the monetary base rose. But the money supply itself did not because the money didn't circulate. Now, eventually, this money is going to begin to circulate. And since we're not producing, you know, you have the issue of too many dollars chasing too few goods. I think that's what's behind that gold purchase. Now, I'm not a gold bug myself. I don't, I don't dabble in that kind of that, that particular market. But what they're concerned about is that all this money, which is being created out of thin air, uh, is going to ultimately try to buy products that aren't there and their prices are going to rise, which is going to result in inflation. And uh, gold would be the place to be. I think that's what explains that uh, the price of gold. Um, yeah, when, we've got to pause, Terry. We've got to pause and then we'll come back to you. And also when we come back, 
I want everybody for the next three minutes to think about what's going to happen to that big mall that you live by. Is it ever coming back? And if it isn't coming back as a shopping mall, what is all that property? How can best? How can it best be used? We'll ask Rick Levin as well. I'm Bruce Dumont. Don't go away. Hi, this is Dr. Phil. The new coronavirus called COVID-19 is spreading in China and beyond. While CDC is working to stop the spread of the virus, we can all play a role in stopping this deadly disease. The CDC Foundation is a nonprofit organization supporting emergency response efforts in the United States and around the world. To get updates and learn how to protect friends and loved ones, find out how to help by going to cdcfoundation.org. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. David Rodriguez and Gloria Chevrolet are watching the show this evening. Thanks very much for tuning in, folks. And uh, we've got three great guests in this hour, and uh, we're going to let them uh, take a moment and introduce themselves. And we're going to begin with Rick Levin. Rick, uh, Rick, tell us a little bit about who you are and, and where you are tonight. I am here in rainy Chicago, Illinois, and um, I have been for 30 years a real estate and personal property auctioneer all over the country for um, all kinds of real estate from homes and shopping centers and office buildings to close big post offices for the U.S. Postal Service mm-hmm. to um, personal property from cars and air, airplanes and vessels of all sizes mm-hmm. for the U.S. Treasury and the IRS and the Secret Service and, and uh, the hundreds of auctions for the FDIC during the Great Recession back okay. in 2008 to 2012. So you are looking forward to a very busy future. Uh, it seems like when there's uncertainty in the economy, um, people tend to want to look towards auctions as a way to find the price of assets, yes. Okay. Terry Savage, tell everybody uh, a little bit about yourself. For those that do not know, you're famous. Oh, well, uh, in, in your eyes. <laughs> she surely is. <laughs> um, I've been involved in the financial markets for years. I was a founding member and the first woman trader on the CBOE. Uh, Chicago Board Options Exchange, and today serve on the board of directors of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. But my my career is in personal finance, television. I've written a syndicated column for more than thirty years. It's now syndicated by the Chicago Tribune, runs around the country, and uh, my most recent book is a brand new third edition in November of the Savage Truth on Money. And the truths remain the same. It's very interesting, uh, but other things will change, and the market certainly will too. Okay. So my website's terrysavage.com. terrysavage.com, and again, Savage Truth on Money. And Mike uh, Miller. I'm uh, an economist at DePaul. I, I, I've had one job in my adult life. I finished my <laughs> PhD at University of Pittsburgh, 1980, moved to Chicago to take the job at DePaul. And one cool thing is, of course, I'm a macroeconomist, so I'm an extremely busy man for the past uh, couple of months. And probably for the future. Uh, could be. Could be. Uh, Rick, uh, I want to go back to you because you've done a lot of work with uh, uh, shopping centers. And shopping centers have been sort of uh, having a difficult time for, for almost several years now. As you right. look into your crystal ball, um, if if they don't come back, 
What's likely to happen to all that property? Well, obviously, the, the malls are often located right in the city center. So they're prominent properties in most communities around the country, uh, at least the big ones. I think th- we will get past this COVID-19, if, but if you listen to Bill and Melinda Gates, there's going to be more viruses, pandemics like this in the next 25 years. So some malls will survive and do probably very well, but they're going to have to add more attractions like ice skating rinks and merry-go-rounds and all the rest. And of course, they'll have restaurants when it's safe to go back to a restaurant. Potential reuses, uh, some have suggested things like um, warehousing or light warehousing for the Amazon packages. You can go pick them up if you can't pick them up at your home or at your uh, condo building if the packages are too large. The other idea is reconfiguring the malls to build some type of single family or townhome or condominium living out in the outskirts of the malls and the parking lots. Especially with autonomous driving cars, you might not need so many parking lot land anyway. I think the bigger problem will come in the local municipalities who are counting on the sales tax revenue from those malls. And when they see that revenue go away, and then they're going to have a bunch more constituents who vote, who they're going to have a harder time raising their property taxes to compensate for the lack of retail sales tax revenue. That's going to be where the real fight comes in as to what to do at these malls. Mm -hmm. Terry Savage, again, I want to go back to uh, uh, the crystal ball again for you and, and, and look at uh, if, if you were a person who is out of work now, and let's say you're out of work and, and let's put you in the, uh, hundred and twenty thousand dollar range uh what would you what would you be doing would would you have confidence that you might be going back to your job that could could keep you at that level or would you be rolling the dice and trying to retrain yourself well sitting home is not a great time to retrain yourself and you don't know what is going to pop in the economy after this Mm -hmm. is over look Nobody ever got rich betting against America. That's a Warren Buffett saying, and I've said that myself a million times. We will come out of this. The economy will reopen, and as we've all said, it will be different. Uh, Different sectors will become important. Different sectors will need the skills that, obviously, you know, we're not going to have as many sales clerks in the shopping mall that Rick is going to turn into an ice skating rink or something like that, you know? So, um, that's the zillion dollar question. It's not just, we know we'll come through this. It's how will we get through this to the other side for individuals. But coming out of it, what are the skills that are going to be required? I mean, what, Rick, who was it? Was it you, Rick, that said, you know, we're still, we pay uh, basketball players $2 million to sit on the bench. But do you think our heroes are really going to be Paris Hilton and Kim Kardashian? Or will America maybe readjust its sights? and readjust its um, need for talent. Maybe we will pay people that are, we've learned our valuable nurses, doctors, and so forth more. So it's, that's the very, the two parts of the crystal ball are, okay, what happens now? Not where does the stock market go, but how does the economy open up? Can we open safely? Will we have a second wave? Because surely a year from now we'll have a vaccine, the economy will be open again, and then becomes that, question, Bruce, you asked the toughest question of all, but will I be part of that new economy? Mm-hmm. And it's something to think about, but it's very depressing just getting through this part. Yeah. And what are you, what are you telling your uh, students that are in their second or third year, Mike, what the oh, future man. might be for them? <clears throat> I wish I could talk to them. Um, 
they're yeah. going to, many of them have to finish up in a format they never in, uh, intended. And we, one thing at the university, we're trying to do some surveys to find out, did students who did not choose to learn online, are they learning anything? Are they enjoying it? Or are they going to fight back and demand that, that this is a, a second rate education and they're going to demand uh, cuts in tuition and, yeah. and so forth. So many a universities. Of, a lot of students are doing that. I know they are. And lots of universities and my own included, uh, we live off of tuition revenue and um, the, the outlook for the future is not at all bright and, and it's going to change. You know, but many universities are asking their people, including faculty to take pay cuts uh, to work more, to teach more classes um, to change the way they teach, and they want this all done to, um, yesterday. And so um, I have many colleagues who have never taught online before. I have, uh, luckily, but uh, within three weeks, they had to create an entire online class so that the students would have some, you know, some way of, mm-hmm. of uh, finishing out their degree or whatever. And this has been extremely disruptive. And um, this seems I, I think to me universities the, will be different. This, this seems to be uh, an opportunity, I think, for... Uh, many non-for-profit institutions and and museums to, if they don't have a strong education mission now, it has to be turned into one with a collaborative effort with with the public schools in their community and also uh, uh, community colleges and and, and uh, full-time colleges. Let's go to Tom. He's listening to us in Sharon, Pennsylvania on WPIC. Go ahead, Tom. You're on the air. Good evening, Bruce, and good evening to your guests. Um, I want to answer your question about the malls, but first I want to go back to the stimulus packages. Yeah. Um, it's my understanding that the first stimulus pack- package was designed in such a way to try to get a V curve out of the economy. In other words, we shot down very quickly. The idea was to get back up very quickly. If you recall, Trump wanted to open everything up as- at Easter time. Right. And that's sure. what, what the money was sent out to as many people in the middle and lower classes as possible so that they would get out in the economy, spend it, and possibly would be able to do that. Um, The uh, powers that be, I I really think they scared us too well in terms of staying at home and uh, so forth, where people, you know, have really uh, been reluctant about getting back out. But as far as the uh, stimulus packages are concerned, um, you know, that was that first one. The second one, it's dead, at least as far as the Senate is concerned. Right. Can, can somebody explain to me why you couldn't take $3 trillion and do the same thing that Trump did the first time? Uh, it, maybe not through taxes, but through other means. Get the jobs that are in China that are vital. I mean, you know, when we're talking about we can't get pharmaceutical items, we can't get face masks, and you consider that they build the computers that we need for our financial services. They provide us with all the parts that we need to have our furnaces that we need in the, the wintertime uh, in where I live or for our uh, uh, refrigerators or for our vehicles and everything else we can think of. Why, you know, you want a use for those malls? Bring those jobs back to this country, and you can put those in the malls and turn the malls into factories. And by the way, there are a number of factories in my area, northeastern Ohio, western Pennsylvania, that still exist from the 60s, 70s, and 80s right. that were manufacturing factories. Right. And, and granted, you know, we don't want to go back to that, but I think that we need to become far more self-sufficient than what we presently are. Mike Miller, your response to that? Well, yeah, um, I'm not one who thinks that the government should be making decisions on who's going to be a winner and who's going to be a loser. 
And I'm not exactly sure that you could bring back jobs into low value, um, high volume items like uh, face masks and so forth. I just don't think that's the future of the United States. Now, maybe we should have more distributors than just one out of China. That way, we're not completely dependent upon China. But uh, I, I think that uh, you're underestimating how difficult it would be to do this and how economically infeasible it is. And therefore, I'm not sure that this would happen. And Bruce, let me just chime in. I don't know that uh, everybody that lives in a nice community is going to want uh, manufacturing right in the middle of their town center. Uh, th- that's a quality of life issue, yeah. especially if those factories are giving off some uh, smokestacks or anything else. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Tom, thanks very much for your call. 1-800-723-8029 from coast to coast and border to border. We have one more segment. We've got some callers on the line. We'll take them and hopefully your call as well. 1-800-723-8029 from coast to coast and border to border. I'm Bruce Dumont tonight from Evanston, Illinois. Every year, millions of Americans use opioids to manage pain. Pain can be unrelenting, overwhelming, and all-consuming. So why do so many of us try to manage pain only from the palm of our hands? Doctor-prescribed opioids are appropriate in some cases, but they just mask the pain. And reliance on opioids has led to the worst drug crisis in American history. That's why the CDC recommends safer alternatives, like physical therapy, to manage pain. Physical therapists treat pain through movement, hands-on care, and patient education. No warning labels required. And by increasing physical activity, you can also reduce your risk of other chronic diseases. Pain is personal, but treating pain takes teamwork. When it comes to your health, you have a choice. Choose more movement and better health. Choose physical therapy. Visit MoveForwardPT.com to find a physical therapist in your area. This message is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association. Bruce Dumont, a reminder, uh, if you will please, if you've got a few extra bucks, uh, go to our GoFundMe page. It keeps the satellite and distribution of this program going forward. Uh, Things are getting a little expensive uh, in the wake of uh, having to find a new studio where we originate from every Sunday night. So go to beyondthebeltway.com, and right there on the front page, you're going to see a, a my smiling picture and a little place to donate. And again, you can see that go up. And again, uh, I want to thank uh, Paul Rodriguez for being a donor uh, just uh, recently, and uh, we thank you very much as he's listening to the program this evening. And uh, it's always nice to get donations from people you don't know especially if they're longtime listeners. It means the program is special to them, and uh, it's certainly special for me every time to get together on Sunday night. But again, beyondthebeltway.com, and that's the GoFundMe page. You'll go right, you'll find it right away. Let's go to Edward, listening to us in Chicago, Illinois. Go ahead, Edward. Yeah, good evening. Uh, what does the panel think about possibly having some kind of savings plan for young people like high school and college so that way they're not... Uh, depending on uh, the government to send out checks whenever there's an emergency. All right, let's get, uh, Terry, uh, your, your response. A, uh, it's, it's a government-suggested uh, savings account for young people. Yeah, you know, we've, we've tried to create uh, prepaid college plans and so forth. The problem is people don't have a high propensity to save. We came through a 10-year economic boom, the longest one on record. And not only did individuals not save and put money away, 
But the government for the last four years has had a trillion dollar deficit every year anyway, in spite of record employment and record economic growth. So we've, I guess we know that it's human nature that, you know, as the Bible said, you have seven good years and seven lean years, put some away. We, this is something that goes back in human nature eons, and we haven't done a very good job of becoming savers. Now, once in a lifetime, something happens like the Great Depression. And a generation comes out of the de- came out of the depression with a real savings ethic. They were the ones that couldn't wait to burn their mortgages. You know, they pay them off and own their home free. And I grew up as a, a child of grandparents who had been in the depression. And I mean, I, I guess I inherited that. I've, I've always been a saver. But we haven't created a lot of incentives for saving. And all our incentives, all our commercials, all our societies about spending. So it's a great idea. But I don't, you know, if the government can't save and individuals can't save, we're lost. We you know, your point, them. your point about your, your, your grandmother, I remember, you know, growing up when, whenever my, my parents and, and my aunts and uncles got together, literally there, there was not one family get together where the subject did not come back to the depression and how the depression had impacted them and that they were, you know, they were frugal. They, you know, they, they learned a lesson from their childhood, but I'm wondering if the lesson that's being learned by young people now is the government's going to send you a check. It may not be a lot of check, but I mean, they're going through a misery right now, but uh, misery is going to come with a, a check or, or an unemployment uh, assistance. Mike, you, you agree? Yeah, with I agree. This is not a, a job of government. This is a job of Terry Savage to work with private households and so sure. forth. No, I agree. I, <laughs> I think what you it, do Terry. and how important it is that you, you get people to manage their money properly and put money aside and so forth. I, that's not the job of government. That's the job of the private sector. And, uh, and education. So. And, and education. education. Yeah, that's that's correct. Terry, go ahead. Take take that. No, I, just, I spent my whole life on that. I, I was really devastated in, in 2008 uh, when I realized that my life's work about financial education, about saving, investing, and looking at the long term, you know, really came down in a poof. And so I, I've, I've become a, a little more um, sanguine about the fact that I can't change human nature, but that every once in a while, I change some family's life by reading go. my books or by giving them the principles. And every once in a while, I went in a restaurant when restaurants were open last year. And a, a waiter, I looked up, he was an elder, older gentleman. And he said, you don't remember me, but I used to be at such and such when you came in. And 35 years ago, you had me open an individual retirement account. And I'm retiring next month. And it's because you told me to make it automatic and put the money in every month. Yeah, so see, that's yeah. It works. It, we, I know it works. It's just hard to teach students. And, and and Bruce, you know, uh, most most people feel that one of the main causes of the Great Depression was a lack of liquidity. So what the government has done here the last two months between the Fed and these stimulus checks has poured unprecedented amounts oh, of yeah. liquidity into the economy, and that is what has I really think saved the country to where we are today. I don't know what's going to happen in the next few months, but to where we are today. So. People getting used to checks coming in the mail. The, the alternative was to do nothing or much less. And I think we could be in a much rougher situation had we done nothing. Oh, no. the Fed. What the Fed did with regard to um, providing liquidity was absolutely essential. Without that, the economy would have collapsed. 
But again, does, does it lead to a, a greater appeal for uh, uh, Bernie Sanders' uh, Democratic Socialism, even though he's not going to be the nominee? It, it, it does. It does, actually. It, it plays right into a lot of uh, his principles, ironically. Do you think it hurts mm. Trump's reelection efforts? Or, is, or, or do you believe that he's uh, cast to die and, and is not going to be able to get out from it? Rick, I'll let you tackle that one first. I, I, I think it's going to be really difficult. Well, I mean, obviously, November's a lifetime away from now. But uh, it also depends on who his opponent is, if it's Biden and uh, Biden's running mate and all the other issues. So I wouldn't count Trump out yet. Terry Savage, quick answer, quick answer. You know, there are enough people out there that believe he still walks on water that uh, this is going to be a very strange election because it's going to be an election of extremes. And um, I'm not, I don't think either of those extremes is what we need in our economy. That's really what's said. We need an economic economy that's growing and providing for all of us. Mike Miller, 10 seconds to you. No, I'm hoping that this is not a changing point for American society to move towards socialism. That would be a disaster. Mike Miller, Terry Savage, Rick Levin, we thank you all very much. TerrySavage.com, if you want all that, your financial information uh, and questions answered. Our thanks to Fritz Goldman, who's always helps with this program. And, of course, the ever-popular Andrew Marshall made it happen. I'm Bruce Dumont. Until next week, good night from Evanston, Illinois.